Welcome to part two of the Milton Johns interview. We left him in the Garrick Club talking equity, so let's rejoin him there. Anticipated, um, and in in seventy two, I was elected to the council. Uh, uh, it was in the days when you looked around, and apart from um, people representing the walk-ons or the opera or the ballet, you knew everyone around that table. You knew them and, and knew their worth as actors. Um, I don't think I opened my mouth for the first six meetings. Um, but in a year later, in 73, uh, I, I was asked to go and see Andre Morel, yeah, dear old yeah. Andre Morel, who was president, and Marius, and a couple of other of the grandees, as it were. And I thought, well, what's up? <laughs> what have I done wrong? Um, and I went to his house, and he said, um, they said to me, uh, the treasurer is resigning uh, through ill health and we'd like you to take it over and I, I said I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm suitable when I was at school I had arrogantly taken the line that uh, I was far too artistic to mess about with mathematics and physics and things like that uh, I said oh, I really can't and they said uh, yes we think uh, we think now these were the leaders of our profession, and when they uh, when they said that to a comparatively young actor, um, you did it, you know. <laughs> and I became treasurer, uh, and was treasurer for about seventeen years in the days when we balanced the books. And I remember one year we had inflation at twenty-seven and a half percent, and when you think that you couldn't put up your uh, um, your income, uh, it, was, it was hairy times, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I never regretted uh, the work I did there. Uh, I regret that life has changed and that young actors do not have the support that we had. Uh, and uh, that's, that's, that's a sadness because you always want to leave something better than when you found it. Uh, and in that respect, of course, one hasn't. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because, as you say, you, 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 you went in there to, um, uh, to to address the balance against just a left-wing insurgents, and yet um, it was a, a, a sort of right-wing government in, in Margaret Thatcher's that uh, took on the unions and equity was... Yeah. Would you say that equity lost some of its power as a, res as well, a result? Of inevitably. Um, because the trade union movement overstepped the mark uh, and were due, were due for a comeuppance. Um, but I, 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 I speak as, as someone very much of a conservative frame of mind. And uh, I, I, 
this, this is qu quite, quite peculiar. Um, but uh, there was a meeting organised by Murdoch at uh, at Downing Street, um, uh, out of which Margaret Thatcher made a, a statement and included equity in uh, Spanish practices, as they called it. Now we wouldn't. Uh, have known a Spanish practice if it hit us in the face. Uh, all we had, we, we said if a play is in the West End, it should be properly understudied. Uh, and if a thing is on tour, it must have a stage manager and assistant stage manager. That was it. We had nothing else. And we were very angry about it. And uh, the councils got to the uh, secretary, Peter Pluvier, to write to her and say, uh, we think you've been misinformed, etc., etc., and didn't get any reply at all. Didn't even get a reply. So John, John Barron, dear John Barron, uh, great was a great friend of mine, uh, and I said to him, I think we should write to her ourselves. And John said, Well, what good's that going to do? I said, Well, it, it's the price of a first-class stamp, which is, in those days was about 19p. So we wrote this letter saying we believe you've been misinformed, etc., etc. And a couple of days later, the phone rang and I picked it up. And it said, uh, this is the Prime Minister's office. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pick up the phone, it's never the Prime Minister's office. <laughs> and I thought someone was playing a joke originally. Uh, it said, uh, would, uh, would next Tuesday suit you? And John and I were both working, or he was working, or I was working. So I said, oh, I'm afraid we can't make that. Um, well, what about uh, Thursday? See, Tuesday and Thursday were Prime Minister's questions in those days. So we arranged to go in on the Thursday. So I met up with John, and, and we briefed ourselves as much as we could. And we were quite early, so we walked down to uh, Downing Street. Uh, John said, I need a drink before I go in. So I, I, I didn't have a drink, he did. And we went to the bottom of Downing Street, where the policemen were and the gates. And you hear yourself saying, uh, in a voice that doesn't belong to you, I have an appointment with the Prime Minister. <laughs> and the policeman says, oh yeah, you're about the 15th that day, probably. And then he phones up and finds that you do. And then it, the door is open for you, the gate. and You find yourself walking up Downing Street. And you think, what happens when I get to the door? Do I knock on the door? Or, I mean, obviously, you're on camera. So the moment you arrive, the door opens. And we were ushered in. And we were told that the prime minister was with uh, the Japanese ambassador. Uh, so would we wait in, we waited in this side room. Would you care for a drink? No, no, we said no. So about 10 minutes later, they came back and said, the Japanese ambassador is still with the prime minister. Can we get you a coffee? So we said, oh yes, please, we'd rather like a coffee. Well, we never did get the coffee because another major domo came in and said, the prime minister will see you now. And we went up that staircase, you know, with the photographs. And Jim Callaghan was over the door because he was the previous Prime Minister. And there we came face to face uh, with the great lady, with two fellows standing back from her. And uh, she sat us down and she said, now what is it you want to talk to me about? 
and we'd arranged that uh, John would make a little statement for about well, 30 seconds or so. He didn't get very far into it. She came in and, and lambasted him with her metaphorical handbag and said, uh, uh, well, you're supposed to be a conservative, she said, and here you are with a closed shop. Oh, she had to be harangued and harangued. Um, and John was defeated because he was an English gentleman and, and arguing with a lady was not his fashion at all. So after about five minutes of this harangue, she said something which was absolutely untrue, to, and I attempted to correct her, and she just carried on talking. Nine minutes into the interview, she said something else which was totally wrong, and I uh, again attempted to argue with her. She carried on talking, and I surreptitiously looked at my watch, and it was 11 minutes past 12 and we were told to expect 15 minutes. And I thought, we're gonna be out on the street in a few minutes with our tails between our legs. Um, and then she said something else which was totally wrong and totally crap. And I started correcting her and I thought, I've got to keep talking. I've got to keep talking. I don't know how long it was we were both talking. It may have been 20 seconds, it may have been 30, it may have been 30 years. From, it just went on forever. And then she stopped and listened and her attitude changed, absolutely. And we had 55 minutes with her, which was 25 minutes more than the Japanese ambassador. And when we went to the door, she took my hand at the door and held it for strictly longer than was necessary. <laughs> and I got this very feminine, very, very feminine side of it. And she took my hand and she said, now, if ever equity is misquoted again, you write and tell me. She said, I read all letters, and I thought, you're probably the only prime minister for a couple of hundred years who does read all the letters. Just write and tell me, she said, and I'll put it right. And we were out in the street. It, it was one of the most extraordinary moments in my entire life. But that period when we were both talking, I mean, you're talking down the most powerful politician in the Western world at that day. I mean, Ronald Reagan wouldn't have, wouldn't have dared to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was interesting. So my time with equity, um, if it hadn't been for the attack it was under from the far left, I probably wouldn't have done it. But then I went from being treasurer there to being treasurer of the Actors Benevolent Fund, uh, which I still am uh, to this day. So... Uh, my, my uh, scholastic attempts to keep clear of balance sheets and so forth failed, <laughs> failed dismally. And yet you're balancing all of that with a, with a, you know, a, a not uh, unimpressive c career. I mean, you seem to be ubiquitous on television. Um, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. Um, I think possibly because I wasn't a one performance actor, although sometimes that can be an advantage. Yeah. And, I mean, are there any other highlights of, of, of television jobs, say, then? That, that, that yes, one, one that is my very great favourite was The Intruder, which we did about 1970 or 1971 for Granada, uh, and of which six episodes, I think only two remain. I, I do hope they'll be found in a back room in Nigeria, uh, <laughs> because... Um, it was uh, directed by Peter Plummer uh, 
and Peter died a few years after that, very young, uh, with cancer. Um, and that, I think I, I enjoyed that more. Oddly enough, um, the, the costume I had for that was later uh, taken over by Michael Crawford uh, in his uh, series. Um, with the, the some uh, others do have with the beret and the coat and everything. In fact, someone said to me, you know, you stole that from him. And I said, no, I did it about five years before, <laughs> actually. Um, it, it was a piece that we had to do under the children's banner because it was the only way they could find the money to do it. But it really wasn't a children's piece. You started off with the good goodies and the baddies. But by the sixth episode, the goodies were a bit grey and the baddies weren't as bad as you thought they were. It was a very adult piece in many respects. And um, the, uh, w one of the fellows who, who works here in this club, actually, uh, said it frightened the life out of him when he was a child. Um, so, so yes, it, it's been a broad range. Um, well, and your, your Doctor Who's have um, uh, culminated. We should, we should cover the, the, the last one, although you appeared on the DVD of that. But um, uh, The Invasion of Time, not directed by Barry Letts this time, but by Gerald Blake. Yes, yes, Jerry Blake, yes, yes. Um, now, we did The Invasion of Time. Um, now, um, my memory is going. Is, was that the last one? That was the, the last one. That yeah. was the you very last one. Uh, uh, that's right. That's right. No. That, so not too long. A couple of years. A couple of years. Because they always said, if you've done uh, a Doctor Who, they didn't want you for another ten years. So when the call came, that was that was surprising. Uh, we did it in a disused mental hospital in Red Hill. Um, there were many theories as to why we did this, that the producer had forgotten to book the studios, or whatever, which I'm sure was not true. Uh, and we turned up the first, second week of January, desperately cold. The place had not been occupied for four years. Uh, and we had to change in one room because it had a fire. Uh, and uh, we, we were kitted out with long johns and other such things. Uh, and if you look very, very carefully on some of the first scenes of the day, you can actually see the actor's breath. Uh, it was that cold. Um, but great fun to do. I mean, a, a common theme between the Android Invasion and uh, the Invasion of Time is that you spend a lot of your time acting with actors in masks. So you've got Martin Friend yes, uh, sticking yes, on the, yes, the Android Invasion and yes. Derek Dedman, the legendary Derek the le Dedman. The legendary Derek Dedman. As uh, yes. the only Sontaran from uh, the East End of London. Exactly. Bless him. Yes. Yes. God, he was great. He was. He was a great man. Great man. But no, I remember sitting in in the the canteen at what we used to call the Acton Hilton, the rehearsal rooms, which are now no more, uh, and looking around and and you know thinking you could cast almost anything from the people who are sitting around here, almost anything. Uh, and at lunchtime, um, you'd get anyone from Gielgud uh, downwards there. I, I remember Gielgud was doing a check-off one day, and that dear actor, Clive Morton, mm. dear old Clive, who was a little stolid, I have to say, but he, he always played lawyers and whatever. 
and uh, Gielgud got his lunch on a tray and was looking round for a, a spare table. Um, there was just one table free with, with, with just Clive sitting there and he turned towards it and then turned away and then looked back again and came back and put his tray down on the table and said, oh, he said, I thought for one moment you were that boring Clive Morton. <laughs> which, which Clive used to tell against himself. <laughs> I think it's rather lovely. Um, but it was very useful um, for what, what we used to call canteen casting. Uh, you know, you were there doing a piece and the, the, the secretary had said to the director on another production, who's going to play that part in episode four? And he says, oh, I can't think about that now. And then you're in there at lunchtime and he passes the table you're sitting at and he thinks, oh, yes, yeah, what a good idea. Yes, I'm sure I got a lot of work by canteen casting uh, in those days. Wouldn't do you much good now, but um, we were very fortunate. Well, you talk, you talk about, I mean, you talk about just plucking actors there out of the ether. Were there actors that, that when you were working in television, which is a different art theatre, that, that, that you would say that you learnt from, that you people thought were exemplars of the art of television acting, which is its own particular thing? I think you acted like a sponge. You took in, you soaked in whatever you could. You watched someone working uh, and thought, now that's a very good thing to do. I see what he's doing. I see how he's preparing, etc., etc. Um, and, and so you just soaked it in all the time. And fortunately, you were working with, with very experienced people. And particularly when you moved into sitcoms, uh, which was a, an area that, that seemed to be barred to you for many years. Um, but I did... Um, I did... One with uh, Dickie Briars, the 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 Penelope Keith names. Uh, the, 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 the good life. The good life. The good life. I had a five-minute scene with Dickie Briars. That was my very first sitcom one, which wasn't a bad start, was it? You know, um, and I remember on the camera rehearsal, looking up and seeing all this range of seats where the audience was going to come in, and I said, Dickie. Who do you play to, the camera or the audience? And he said, oh, the camera, dear boy. He said, there are more of them. Yes. <laughs> um, and then once I'd broken into that, I did a lot of sitcoms. Um, uh, and I, I did uh, an ever-decreasing circles, uh, which uh, I used to see quite a bit of Dickie because he sat on the board of the Actors' Benevolent Fund. And uh, uh, he was so helpful in, 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 I watched him, I watched how he worked. Again, it's this, this sponge business. But you started doing that when you were in rep, as I say. You, you noted how certain people went about their work and you either, you either took it on or discarded it. But uh, that that was the benefit of working with people who'd been on the boards for so many years. You've also worked with Basil Brush. Mr. Basil Brush. Yes, indeed I have. Um, that, when you find yourself talking to a puppet, you, know, uh, um, you, do, you, you do 
question your sanity at times. Um, but that the fellow who operated it uh, was so good and so enthusiastic. Um, they are tedious things to do because you have to stop and shoot from another direction, so forth. Um, but yes, yes, I think, I think I'm one of the few people who can claim to have worked with Sir John Gielgud and Basil Brush, really. I think that's a, that's a record I'm very proud of. And do you have any unfulfilled ambition for acting? Um, I'd like to keep working. But uh, a bit choosy, frankly. I mean, the idea of going into the West End six nights a week uh, no longer appeals to me. I thoroughly enjoyed playing a uh, woman in black for a year uh, because it is essentially an actor's piece. Um, but the idea of going into the West End now six nights a week, no thank you. Uh, and also, I, I followed my other love of horse racing. And uh, I still do the public address at Plumpton Racecourse. Um, and I do quite a bit of public address at Lord's during the summer. Um, cricket has always been a great love of mine. Uh, and I, I've been a qualified cricket umpire for, well, since 1978. Um, and uh, Johnny Dennis, who used to do the test matches as well. He's just retired from that. About 13 years ago, said, why don't you come and help out at Lord's during the summer? And I spent over 30 days there last summer. Um, so it's got to be a good job to get me away from Lord's and the race course, really. Well, uh, and we have a lot of American listeners to this podcast. Oh, then they'll Tell be lost. Tell the Americans why on earth, is it, what on earth it is about cricket that, uh, that appeals. It is not a game, it is a way of life. Uh, and and it's a mystery, I'm sure, to Americans. Uh, they're always I mean, I had an American friend who said to me, you know, you can play a game for five days and not get a result. And I said, yes, but of course you could play chess for five days and not get a result, and it could be a damn fine game. Um, but, uh, no, it, it, trying to explain the love of cricket to an American is for, it's a waste of breath. Absolute waste of breath. Uh, well, I yeah. have exceeded uh, the time. I could spend all day doing this. Um, uh, so I'll, I, will, I will wrap up by asking you the, the two final questions. Um, the first one is, because you've kindly given your time and the listeners have not paid for this, what is your charity? Well, I have mentioned it before. It's the Actors Benevolent Fund, uh, which is a charity that looks after uh, performers who, through illness or injury, are unable to work. Uh, and uh, it's uh, a charity very, very dear to my heart. Uh, I'm also chairman of the Equity Charitable Trust, which is an independent charity, although it's, uh, uh, it's, it's allied uh, to equity. Uh, but the ABF is, is the one that's dearest uh, to my heart. And if anyone cares to contribute, uh, it will be gratefully received. Um, interestingly, I mean, uh, certainly when I started getting the stage, of course, as a young yes. actor, you yes. had your regular letters to a young actor. Gosh, yes, yes. That got me into a lot of trouble. I annoyed a lot of people, um, which gave me great pleasure, <laughs> actually. Um, yes, yes. Uh, I did about, ooh, 
about 40, 45 weekly articles uh, for them. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that. And what, enjoyed what, what was it that you did that annoyed people? Um, told the truth sometimes, which isn't always a, a palatable thing to do. Um, but uh, I, um, I, I very much played the old codger, uh, which some people couldn't quite see through. You know, they took it. They took it for absolute real. Um, uh, although it's, it was mixed with, with, with truth, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I tried to entertain, uh, and it was. I'm pleased I stopped when I did, because I didn't want to go on until I started repeating myself. And people said, "Oh, your articles are not as good as they were a little while ago." You know, that was. But it was yet another thing to do. You know, life is is comparatively short. I'm 75 now, uh, but I've tried to live a number of lives, uh, not only as an actor, but connected with cricket and, and horse racing and a little dabble into journalism um, I have a strong feeling we do come back in, in a future life but uh, if we don't it's up to us to cram what we can into it well, and I understand and, and in terms of life and giving life your grandchildren have bought you the enemy of the world Christmas is that right? They have indeed uh, and I, I have therefore I'm not to watch it until I receive it at Christmas so I'm way behind everybody else. Everybody else seems to have seen it, and I haven't. But I'm looking forward to it, particularly, you know, I can view it and just remember I was young once, or comparatively so. Well, and Doctor Who is 50 this year, which is uh, yes, a yeah. leaping off point for yeah, me doing yeah. this. Um, and obviously you've done so much in your career, but for some reason Doctor Who holds this fascination for people, and this podcast is listened to by great many Doctor Who fans, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Well, I'm very grateful for them, very grateful, uh, and uh, there must be something special about Doctor Who to have this uh, uh, control over folks for so many years. In, in many ways it was a prelude to, although it's a different kind of thing, Star Wars, uh, which became immensely popular. Uh, and in which I, I, one of them, I had a two-line part, uh, which only took me seven weeks to do, <laughs> actually. Um, which is another story. That's uh, that's uh, that's quite a different, quite a different story. Um, but uh, no, I, I think it's got to be fun. Really, you've got to try and make life fun. Uh, you get your setbacks. You get your personal uh, setbacks get your tragedies, whatever, but um, you've got to, although I say I'm pretty sure one does, one will come back in one shape or another, uh, you've got to make the most of this one. Um, and I would like to have done other things, but then you can't do everything in life, can you? Uh, and if I was starting again, which thank God I'm not, because young actors don't have the the help that we had but if I was starting life again uh, I'd still go on the boards um, my, my children fortunately my son is an osteopath um, who was lead osteopath at the Olympics and my daughter has worked in television for years but when she was 16 she was going to do her O levels and she has a capacity or had a capacity for passing exams 
Some people do and some people don't. But uh, they had a mock O-level and uh, she didn't do particularly well. And so I took it upon myself to play the heavy father. And uh, I, I talked to her for some time saying how important I think it is and you really must knuckle down and do some work. And being her, she listened to me quietly without any interruption until I ran out of things to say and was re beginning to repeat myself. And when I finally paused, she said, well, Daddy, if all else fails, I'll just have to go on the boards, won't I? <laughs> Collapse of stout party. No, I'd do it all again. Well, I'm very grateful that you found the time to do this. Um, I grew up watching performances and admiring them from far, and absolutely vastly privileged that you've given me your time this afternoon. So, Milton Johns, thank you very much. My pleasure. My thanks to Milton, an exquisite gentleman and a fine actor. Uh, last week I mentioned his favourite charity, the Actors Benevolent Fund, so this week I'll link to his second choice. Uh, up to you to do uh, twice to the Actors Benevolent Fund or to add to this one, which is the Equity Charitable Trust, which is equitycharitabletrust, all one word, dot org dot uk, equitycharitabletrust dot org UK. As ever, whatever you can give is gratefully received. Next up, we nobble off pretty much all of the uh, outstanding stories from the modern era with a gentleman who plays a key role behind the scenes uh, on the very latest episodes of Doctor Who, but has other serious claims to fame as well. Unfortunately, it sounds like I've interviewed him at the bottom of the sea. Ah well, you can't have everything. Until next time, glug, glug, glug. That was that was quite fun. So in a way, and with, with what is what is actually quite fun with my our youngest daughter has been working as a standby art director, and um, yeah, and art director as well. And so we've had so we had three generations on Doctor Who. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, The Yes Men. No one home. No one anywhere, Ben. It's all very hot. You want to investigate. Don't you? Well, no bones broken at least. Uh, and, and we're in. The acting prime designate is on her way here with security. You'll be sent for full data extraction. Can you tell me how she died? Accessing data from CIB. Mekovos' death was due to myocardial infarction. Oh. I'm back at Colorden. Ah, this time, different. Mekovos' death was due to an ischemic stroke. Now, hey, let them go. The Prime Designate says that if we advance, she will kill the hostages. You've got to do something. We are following the data extracted from your brain. What was it that killed her? Mekovos's death was due to malignant neoplasia. A city. A city under the ground. How long have you not been down? The city was established 12.8 years ago, citizen. She died of cancer, a heart attack and a stroke. Yes, citizen. We think you can teach us. We dissect the operative parts of your head. 
Bring the human. No, 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 wait. You, you don't need to slice me. Look, I can tell you what you want to know. Hey, hey, hey. Big finish. We love stories.